we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, the Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And we are going to do a follow-up uh, of last week's podcast, where we spoke with Professor Amy Wax about a variety of issues, but kind of summarized an article that she had co-authored with Jason Richwine. And one of the things that that article focused on was the number of academic studies that showed an employer bias against American workers. I mean, study after study after study. It was an extensive, kind of like almost a literature review. What I wanted to do is follow up on that with Professor Wax's co-author, Jason Richwine, who is an analyst here at the center. And the way to approach it, I think, is maybe we'll start with a brief clip from a Nobel Prize economist basically saying that there's no effect on wages of American workers from immigration. And she was actually categorical about this, not minimizing it, not saying that there's nuances and all that sort of thing, but the categorical. The economist is Esther DeFlo. She was doing an interview about a new book where she talks about a number of issues, including immigration and supports mass immigration. And uh, we can hear what she says here quite categorically about the lack of any downside to mass immigration. All the research on the vast majority of the research, and there has been study after study after study of migration. There was a report from the National Academy of Science in the U.S. that summarized maybe hundreds of studies. And they all come to the conclusion that the effect of uh, low-skilled migration on low-skilled wages is zero. So in other words, when you Zero. It's not just that it's small. It's zero. It's zero. So you can see how categorical that was. There's no effect whatsoever. The interviewer even gave her a chance to qualify her response, and she doubled down on it. And so I thought that would be a good starting point for talking with Jason, because he's actually looked into some of the concrete cases where American workers have, in fact, been explicitly discriminated against. Jason, thanks for joining us. And what was your reaction to that sound clip that we played? Well, thanks for having me on, Mark. I have to say I was kind of flabbergasted by it. I, I first encountered it back in the fall of 2019, and I didn't get it then. I still don't get it now. She was referencing the National Academy's report from 2016. And ironically, that report, if you actually read it, has probably one of the best chapters I've ever read summarizing the empirical work done by economists on this question of the wage impact of immigration. I strongly recommend it to anyone who's interested in diving into this issue. It was comprehensive, it was balanced, and the kind of summary of that chapter 
came from a table, I believe it was table 5-2, in case you'd like to read it for yourself, where they have a long list of empirical estimates of the wage impact of immigration. And if I recall correctly, it was 18 out of the 22 were negative numbers. In other words, there was a immigration was lowering the wages of either U.S.-born workers or of prior immigrants who were already here before new immigrants came. And so where Esther DeFlo is getting that information, I really have no idea. But nonetheless, I think the empirical studies are, are fairly clear on this. Now, you probably know, Mark, since you, you've known me for a while, I don't like the word consensus when it comes to science. I don't like using that word. I don't think that truth should be subject to majority vote. And I certainly think that the experience of our public health establishment over the past year probably is, is an indication that we don't want to take things as truth just because the so-called expert says them. But all that aside, I think it's certainly fair to say that most of the major empirical papers looking at this question of labor market impact of immigration on workers do find negative impacts. Right, yeah. And um, to underline, this was a Nobel Prize economist stating what you would sort of think of as almost like a Twitter kind of opinion. In other words, a categorical one that it's absolutely black or absolutely white. Most things usually aren't that. What you're saying is that actually it is at least pretty dark gray. In other words, there's always you could change assumptions and come up with some different results. But like you said, most economists do find that there is some negative effect. Somebody is being harmed by mass immigration. I think that's pretty clear. And again, if you read the chapter in the National Academy's report, it's very difficult for anyone to come away thinking anything other than what you just said, that there are a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of different factors to consider. But overall, there appears to be this negative effect. Now, there are some, I guess I would call it interpretive obstacles with these empirical papers in that, although they're very valuable, don't get me wrong, there's a couple problems. One is they're hard to understand for a lay person, especially. So if someone just gives you a sort of a black box model and says, you know, I put some numbers in and it spits some numbers out and here's what, it's, what it tells me about the world, well, it can be hard to understand. And All the Greek letters in the equations don't help either. You have to have Greek letters. You cannot <laughs> write an academic paper unless you use Greek letters. <laughs> the regular letters just don't work. And so the second problem really is that because these models are so assumption-driven, it's not that hard to parameterize a model in a way that produces a result that you want. And so there are certainly some individual studies out there that kind of go against the grain and that claim zero impact of immigration. And of course, guess which ones get cited by immigration advocates? It, it happens all the time, and there's so many examples of that. My favorite, actually, was uh, it was an ABC News fact check that occurred in 2016. It was from the vice presidential debate. And I remember it was Mike Pence had said something to the effect of, you know, immigration lowers wages. And ABC News. Now, Mark, I know you and I both are frequently impressed by the seemingly limitless wisdom of Washington, D.C. news reporters. And so this reporter managed to resolve a decades-long dispute in the economics literature. In a single paragraph, he said that, in fact, no, that's false, and they don't lower wages. I should say he or she, 
it's amazing how they're able to resolve these difficult problems in so uh, concise a fashion. Well, if a reporter said it, then it must be true. Well, it's not just the reporter, though. Consider his source. I want you to guess who the source is for this reporter's claim that there was no impact. Would it be too crazy to say the Cato Institute? <laughs> I thought you might say that, but no, here's, here's the weird thing. The answer is the National Academy's report. Which says nothing of the kind. So in my own paranoid moments, I wonder if there's some sort of smoke-filled room where there are immigration advocates saying, okay, here's what we're going to say from now on. If someone ever says immigration lowers wages, you just cite the National Academy's report. And I can imagine someone sort of timidly raising his hand saying, but that's not what the National Academy's report says. And then, of course, they all sort of attack him or something. I don't know what happens in those smoke-filled rooms. <laughs> but there's so many other examples of this where, you know, citing one study, the Mariel Boatlift, for example, many of your listeners are probably familiar with that. Vox in 2017, here's a headline. This is the headline from Vox. There is no evidence that immigrants hurt any American workers. Any American workers. Remember, this is Vox, though, that reported that there is a bridge connecting the West Bank to the Gaza Strip in an explainer telling you about the Middle East. So my only point here is that it's not necessarily the most authoritative source. I don't consider the most authoritative source, but there are too many people who do, unfortunately. Uh, there's Bloomberg in 2018, immigrants haven't hurt pay for Americans. Forbes in 2015, illegal immigrants don't lower our wages or take our jobs. Well, that's good to know. But again, well, these claims are just not consistent with the empirical literature. But as I said, the reason why I got into this report that looks at EEOC cases, that's Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, is a way of kind of addressing those obstacles I mentioned, those interpretive difficulties, in that EEOC cases, when they refer directly to cases in which immigrants are being favored over natives in low-skill work, uh, they're very easy to understand, first of all. I mean, they're just simple stories. No Greek letters. No Greek letters at all. And at the same time, they really kind of give the lie to the idea that there's zero impact. I mean, certainly you can just dispute the degree of impact, but the idea that nothing is happening, that it's all just absolutely win-win-win for everyone, is just sort of obviously false when you get into some of these things. And you know, we can get into to some of the details of the cases, but that's sort of the main takeaway right away is, is to say, when you read over these, and we, we did a report a couple of years ago on this, again, it's just like reading the National Academies chapter. You read over these EEOC cases and you're kind of hit over the head with it. There's no way you can believe anymore that there's zero impact. And the point, again, is that these uh, cases, first of all, it's not just one or two. There were a whole series of cases, not just complaints, but these were ones where they were resolved and the employers were, in fact, found to be favoring immigrant workers over Americans. It, in other words, you could still argue that maybe there's a net positive effect, maybe. I mean, these don't prove that that's not true. What they disprove is the kind of facile and simplistic position, which ironically a Nobel Prize economist was taking, is that, that nobody is inconvenienced pretty much in any way by mass immigration. So what are some of these instances that you found? And the, like, by the way, the report about these EEOC cases will be uh, in the show notes, but go ahead. Well, I mean, let me give you just a few examples. Uh, so one of them, there's a 2011 EEOC lawsuit. As you mentioned, these are the ones that actually went to the, to the point of being a lawsuit. Like the situations where the EEOC comes in and threatens a lawsuit unless you make some changes, 
we don't have as nearly as good as documentation on that. So again, this is just a brief sampling of all the stuff that's going on out there. Sort of tip of the iceberg, as it were, almost. Yes. So 2011 EEOC lawsuit against Southern Valley Fruit and Vegetable. So this is an, a business that primarily employs Mexicans for the harvest season, but apparently they would initially, emphasis on the word initially, hire Americans as well. But what would happen is, as soon as the harvest season began, the Americans would be very quickly discharged. This is an actual quote. Okay, this is a quote here. All you Americans are fired, end quote. That comes from the EEOC quoting a manager speaking to a group of 80 Americans. And apparently that exact quote has been found in other cases as well, not just this one in particular. Another one, apparently 16 Americans were fired at the same time, and the manager stated, all you black American people, F you all, just go to the office and pick up your check. Uh, the EEOC Atlanta office was the one that dealt with this case, and what they said was, quote, the practices alleged in the lawsuit are relatively common in the industry, end quote. And they also brought in an attorney from Georgia Legal Services. I imagine that's not a right-wing outfit. Nope. And here's their quote. Discrimination against American workers in the H-2A guest worker program is endemic. We hope this case will bring attention to that problem, end quote. So, you know, that's just one example. There are many more. I don't want to bore your listeners with too many, but I think it's worth pointing out that sometimes the cases are explicit in that it's immigrants being favored over natives, but a lot of times it's actually Hispanic workers being favored over black workers. And you got a hint of that in the last case where they said, all you black American people are fired. And you have to kind of read between the lines in these cases, where if you look at the, the region in the United States and the time period, in almost all these cases, the Hispanic workers are going to be either majority or overwhelmingly foreign-born workers. And of course, the black American workers are going to be U.S.-born. Great example of that, actually a very uh, egregious example, was a case out of Memphis. There was a warehouse that had a new employment agency come in, and it basically came in with the goal of replacing all the black workers with Hispanic workers. This is not subtle stuff. This is not, this is not subconscious bias that you can only detect in one of those implicit association right. tests. This is very, very much deliberate. So one of the tricks they would use is every morning they would have potential workers line up outside the warehouse. And they would wait, and some of them would be selected. And sometimes what the managers would do is they would announce in English that there are no more positions. And then so the black workers would leave, and then the Hispanic workers would just come into the warehouse and work. So many more. I mean, Prestige Transportation Service, this is in Florida. The owners just did not want to hire black drivers. This is a quote from the EEOC lawsuit. On multiple occasions when a black person applied for employment, Prestige managers Ms. Ramirez and Ms. Rodriguez would stand behind the applicant and rub their hands on their skin to display their disdain for black people, end quote. So again, uh, not subconscious, not subtle. And it's not like disparate impact stuff or anything like that. This is actual intentional discrimination. This is not a case where someone has to do a, a complex econometric analysis to reveal the subtle bias against one group or the other. No, this is... They're literally rubbing their hands on their skin. Uh, is out of contempt, basically. I want to emphasize that although the most common story is that Hispanic workers are favored over black workers, it also sometimes applies to whites as well. I have other cases of this where there was a Hampton Inn in Colorado where the new owners 
wanted to replace the white housekeepers with Hispanic housekeepers. And they instructed general manager who testified that this is what they wanted. And that's what the general manager did. And within just three months, all of the Hampton Inn's non-Hispanic housekeepers were simply gone. Again, when you read 20 of these, I believe there are 20 in the report, and you see these same patterns happening over and over again, it's just very hard to deny the reality of what's going on. Yeah, and I mean, this is anecdotal, but in a sense, it's all anecdotal. The Washington Post actually had a piece on a McDonald's south of the Capitol, and most of the workers there were American, black American local workers, and a new manager came in who was Hispanic, and this, this is the, the Washington Post story talks about how within a couple months, there was only one American worker still working at this place. And they didn't even talk about it in the context of, you know, the American workers being flushed out. It was just sort of a description about this interesting, uh, you know, sort of slice of life story. So, frankly, much of our elite media just kind of takes this as normal and given and, you know, it's not really a problem. I mean, one can say that about their attitude toward immigration in general, sure. that, that it's not even a policy choice. It just seems to be happening. Right. There were some immigrant workers as well filing complaints with EEOC, right? And Hispanic workers generally. Well, this is where it gets interesting because it goes back to you know the concern that, well, this is just anecdotes. You know, Maybe you left out all the anecdotes that tell the reverse story. But the consistency here, I think, is really telling in, in that when you have conflicts between immigrants or natives or Hispanics and black workers, virtually always it goes in the direction that I mentioned. It's immigrants being favored over natives, Hispanics being favored over blacks. In fact, I, I was not able to find any cases of the reverse in, in low-skill occupations. Maybe they exist. I don't want to say they don't exist at all, but that's the pattern. But you're right, though, that Hispanics do file complaints, but it's very telling what kinds of complaints they file. When they file complaints, it's not to say we're being displaced by some other group. That's not what they're saying. Or denied jobs or whatever, right? What they are saying is their pay is too low. They're saying the working conditions are, are poor. They're saying that they've suffered harassment on the job. You wouldn't believe the number of sexual harassment claims made by Hispanic women to the EEOC. It's sad, really, because it's pretty clear what's going on. You have probably many illegal workers who are out on the fields having apparently very little recourse legally and being the victims of, it's not just inappropriate comments. It's, it involves a physical harassment as well. And all this is perfectly in line with the economic theory that was being tested with those quantitative models, which is that when immigrants come in, that puts pressure downward on wages and working conditions. Since you did this, I think, didn't you do, uh, you, you found another case too, kind of as a addendum or addition to the report? We, you blogged on it? It was just this past spring the EEOC settled yet another lawsuit. This one was, let's see, the plaintiffs, I think actually were mostly white. I think there was one, at least one black plaintiff. Again, it, it was favoring Hispanic workers in, I believe it was a frozen foods company. And so there's a, a variety of lower skill jobs. And uh, there's one worker they profiled who managed to get a job, but was sort of told that the manager had to pull strings because he was Anglo in order to get the job. And he was shortly fired later for you know reasons that had nothing to do with his training. It's ongoing. It's an ongoing thing that you can just follow what the EEOC is doing. And again, you know, I made this comment in relation to Georgia Legal Services about not being a, a right-wing outfit. 
obviously the EEOC is not a right-wing outfit either. And to the extent that they are pointing out these problems, uh, you know, again, again, it's a pretty strong indication that these are real problems. And the opposite is true as well. In other words, this isn't something we've published on, but when an employer has been denied its illegal alien workforce because of, you know, some kind of enforcement action, which doesn't happen now under this administration, but it used to, American workers end up getting opportunities. There was a bakery, I think, I mean, a big, not just a little bakery, but like a factory bakery in Chicago that lost a substantial part of its workforce. And lo and behold, they started hiring black Americans, you know, who were in the local area because they didn't have any choice. Likewise, there was a series of raids on chicken plants in the South. And what happened was the plants sort of said, okay, well, like it or not, we're going to have to hire locals. They even set up like, I remember one of them set up a van shuttle from a nearby town because a lot of the lower skilled workers that would be taking these jobs didn't have cars or didn't have reliable access to transportation. So my point is, in other words, that essentially proves the discrimination because once they're denied access to their immigrant workforce, employers often will kind of shrug and say, okay, well, we'll take the hit and we'll hire Americans if we really have to. I think that's one of the best kinds of social welfare programs, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's not a welfare program. It's not the government doing anything other than just enforcing immigration laws. But when they do, that compels employers to recruit people who they had not been recruiting before. I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I, I recognize, and this is something you talked about with, with Amy Wax last time, that a lot of American workers, particularly lower skilled ones, do have problems they struggle with. I, I don't want to pretend that's not true. And I think the point to emphasize here, too, is it's the ones who are, who are not employed and are likely to be in the market for a job because they don't have one, who are the ones that have a lot of the human capital problems, you know, whether it's drug addiction or former status as an ex-con or what have you. Yeah, drug abuse and criminal background and, and welfare dependency as well can all be problems that some native-born workers experience. And I'm certainly not going to blame immigration for those problems. It's very complicated problems. But uh, as, as you and, and Amy discussed last time, and as, as, as she and I discussed in, in our essay for American Affairs, the first step in really addressing the problem is to turn off the spigot, so to speak, of low-skill immigration to sort of force us, compel us to worry about this issue. Because once employers realize that we can't conduct our business normally, without these workers, it's going to be a much, much bigger political issue. And we'll be forced to think about ways to help lower skill Americans kind of come back into the workforce, get their lives together in a way. And in a sense, to underline that point, it's not so much that we'll just be forced to think about it. It creates an actual incentive for business lobbyists to, you know, push for things other than mass immigration and to invest in whether it's labor saving, whether it's apprenticeship programs or prisoner reentry programs, all those things exist, but they become much more salient and have to become much more high priority if employers don't have access to this essentially unlimited supply of foreign labor. You know, we saw kind of a hint of that in 2019 when the labor market was so tight. There were multiple news articles about employers especially recruiting ex-cons and people with disabilities. And I'm afraid a lot of people didn't really connect the dots there. I mean, I, reading those stories, a lot of people say, oh, that's good. That's great that you know we're reaching out to people who, who have these problems. But 
I, I don't think that the average person reading those stories understands that that's the benefit of a tight labor market and that immigration policy affects that. The, the, the tightness of that market is influenced by the degree to which we're willing to bring in or not bring in more people from abroad. I, I, we tried to make that connection back in 2019, and it's sometimes hard to do. It's sometimes hard to cut through the political correctness associated with it. But it, it remains true that how we deal with immigration policy is going to directly affect how much employers are willing to reach out to our fellow Americans who are, who are less skilled. And just to explain to people, I mean, we understand what a tight labor market means. Most people will get that. But the point of it is there are more jobs chasing fewer workers. In other words, a tight labor market is where the worker is in a good bargaining position and the employer has to hustle to find workers and therefore has to either offer more money or different benefits, whatever it is, as opposed to a loose labor market, which is what business lobbyists always prefer, which is where employees or potential workers have to hustle to find jobs. And really, in a sense, one of the basic questions of immigration policy is which should we prefer as a society? Do we prefer workers having to hustle to find jobs, or do we prefer employers having to hustle to find workers? And it seems to me whichever way you come down on that then does sort of help shape your perspective on immigration. And what's ironic is that much of the left has now adopted the Chamber of Commerce perspective on this, that employers, businesses, should not have to work too hard. They shouldn't have to break a sweat to find workers, when in fact, of course they should, it seems to me, if you're worried about the lot and the life prospects of ordinary Americans. The change on the left has been particularly disappointing, and it's really happened only over the last maybe 10 to 15 years. I mean, I remember New York Times editorials in my adult life saying we need to cut down on illegal immigration because of its effect on wages. It's unthinkable these days. The FLCIO actually led the effort against the amnesty push in the 1980s. And nowadays we get the New York Times running articles where they have a picture of a guy who owns a vacation home and the caption says that ever since Trump cracked down on immigration, he's had to clean his own toilets. That, that, that's the kind of thing the New York Times runs these days. And it was meant to be a very sad thing. It was meant to be what an injustice that this guy has to clean his own toilets. Well, because, you know, they're friends in the Hamptons having a hard time finding good help. I mean, that, I mean, that really does reflect the broader change in the media, where it's now become a kind of professionalized elite occupation rather than the thing that the bookish brother of the cop and the fireman went into. I think it's, it's too bad in, in a number of ways, but I mean, I, I think the, the case for having special obligations to our fellow Americans, I think, is a very strong one. I, and I think that there's a utilitarian case for it. I mean, we're, we're naturally kind of a tribal species. You know, we, we want to help out the people within our circles. And I think we've actually historically done quite a, a good job of, of creating, out of a very large and diverse country, creating a, a national sense of brotherhood, I, I would say, maybe too strong, but a, certainly a, a sense of national character. And I, I think we're losing some of that now. And I just don't think that a, a sort of global utilitarian perspective is one that works very well for human nature. And unfortunately, that seems to be the way the left is going on this. And to get back down to the specific here, 
the media usually loves the kind of, I mean, I'll put it derogatorily, sob stories that you talk about in this report about Americans, you know, all you Americans are fired. And to their credit, BuzzFeed, of all places, actually has done a whole series of stories on some of these instances you found. I mean, not from based on our report, but they found some of these. They've written on it. No one else has done that kind of, you know, essentially a human interest gloss or lead to a broader policy issue, whereas they're constantly doing these kind of stories where they're using specific instances to make a case for amnesty for the DACAs and, you know, that sort of thing. In other words, pro-immigration, quote, reporting, unquote, uses these kind of anecdotes all the time, whereas there is no interest in using these kind of anecdotes that cast doubt on the undiluted good of immigration. Well, it would complicate the narrative, I suppose. You know, people have a, a desire to have things simplified in their minds. And if you once you tell somebody that, uh, yes, we understand your concern for immigrants and certainly their welfare is one that we should certainly consider, but also consider the welfare of Americans and the fact that those two things might conflict and that, God forbid, we might actually have to you know, acknowledge trade-offs and weigh things up. I don't think they want to do that. They want to have a very simple narrative that they can tell. And unfortunately, they've been effective with it. Yep. So Jason Richwine has been our guest. The report we've been talking about here on EEOC discrimination cases against Americans is on our website. It'll be in the show notes too, but it's on our website at cis.org. All of Jason's work, all of our work, it's all there. And I appreciate your joining us, Jason, and we'll have you back if you find some other interesting cases like this or any of the other research you're working on. It'll be my pleasure. For my closing commentary, I wanted to say a few words about an announcement this week by DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. If you're following the news, you'll see that there's been developments both in Haiti and Cuba. Haiti, the president there, was assassinated under some kind of mysterious circumstances, and the political situation is very fluid. And in Cuba, there have been mass demonstrations against the communist gangster regime that has ruled that country for. 60 years or more. And both of those developments create the real potential, at least, for increased number of people fleeing those countries, getting on boats and rafts, and trying to get to Florida. This has happened before several times, and so it makes sense that DHS would be planning ahead for this. Secretary Mayorkas had a press conference. It's on C-SPAN reported widely, and he made what seemed to be a very strong statement. He said, and I'll quote two sentences from it that get the point across, quote, if you take to the sea, you will not come to the United States. And then a little after that, he said, quote, any migrant intercepted at sea, regardless of their nationality, will not be permitted to enter the United States, unquote. Basically, what he was doing was warning people not to get on boats and think that we're going to let you in the United States. That's good. We have made those kind of announcements, issued those kinds of warnings before. The problem, of course, is that there's really no substance to it. Because even if people whom the Coast Guard intercepts and apprehends 
won't be let into the United States, and let's see if they actually even follow through on that. The fact is that as he was speaking, Cubans and Haitians who went to Mexico, made their way to the border and crossed the Rio Grande, were in fact being released into the United States. So in a sense, what Mayorkas has announced is a replay or a restoration of what used to be called the wet foot, dry foot policy. That was something that Bill Clinton put into place that said if you were a Cuban and you were caught at sea, in other words, that's the wet foot part, you would not get into the United States. Usually what they do is they take them to Guantanamo or maybe they just return them immediately if they don't make an asylum claim. But the point is they end up back in Cuba. The dry foot part of that policy was that if you made it to the beach and got your foot on dry land, you were then home free. As a Cuban, you'd just be let in, and after a year, you'd get a green card, you'd be home free. It's called wet foot, dry foot. That's been repealed. It doesn't apply anymore, so that neither wet foot nor dry foot gets you into the United States, and that's what Mayorkas was announcing. The problem is that those people, like I said, who get to Mexico, get across the border, wherever it is, and so they're, you know, step foot on the United States on the other side of the Rio Grande, do get in. So it's, you know, it's the wet foot, dry foot again. It's just that getting to Florida doesn't get you the dry foot, so-called benefit of being released into the United States. You just have to cross the Rio Grande or step across the border in Arizona or California, and that's your dry foot, basically, if you're Cuban or Haitian or really anybody especially if you bring a kid with you, whether you're from Romania or Uzbekistan or whatever, you, under this administration, are released into the United States. So I posted on this at the corner at National Review, and the headline was, Wet Foot, Dry Foot is Back, Sort of, which it is. It's just that instead of getting to the beach in Florida, you have to get to the U.S. side of the Rio Grande, and you will be just as home free, released into the United States and never be removed. That's it for this week's Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. All of our work is online at cis.org, and I hope you will tune in next week. Thank you.